Well, thank you guys again for having me. I will always be grateful to my husband for his generosity in sharing the pulpit on occasion with me. Um, and thankful to you guys. Um, usually, no matter how bad this goes, you smile at me, you nod. I, um, I told Ryan and Jenny actually this morning that often when I write a sermon, I try really hard to make it like a, like a balanced plate, you know, so that there's sort of a light salad beside the heavy steak. I can't do it today. Okay, so just, I think at the end of this sermon, I'm going to feel like I've run a marathon. I think you might feel perhaps a little bit like you do, like, you remember at Thanksgiving, right after you got married, when you got twice as much family to account for, and every grandma wants you to eat her pumpkin pie? All right, y'all ready for a full plate of a lot of richness here? It's just too good. I couldn't leave anything out. So we're in this sermon series that Ryan invited me to participate in called Getting Involved with God. We've been through the imprecatory or the cursing psalms. We've been through Job. Today, where we're going to land is in Exodus 33 with Moses and the Israelites right after the incident with the golden calf. Okay, that's where we're going to get to. Um, At the very end of that is what Cindy read for us this morning about where Moses asked God to show his glory. So we're going to get there. But we're going to back up and start a ways away. Why this is going to feel like a marathon, okay? Now, getting involved with God, relating to God, has some barriers to it. Amen? And one of those, I think, is um, misconceptions. Now, I, I, uh, I haven't been spying on you. I didn't interview your friends and family. I didn't read your diary. But I promise I know something that you have done. And that is that you are you have relationships with people and relationship with God has suffered because of your misconceptions. And I know this because you're people. <laughs> I know this because we all do it. This is what our brains are wired to do. We have some pieces of information that we definitely know. And what we do is we make up a story that connects them. That's how we understand the world. We make up a story that makes these pieces of information make sense in our world. Only sometimes it's the wrong story. (laughs) We make up a story to help us understand our world, and then we get married to it because they make us feel really safe, right? They make us feel knowledgeable in a world that feels too vast to be knowable. They make us feel safe in a world that feels threatening. They make us feel like we can follow the rules in a world that feels unruly. And it's really hard to pry those stories out of our hands once they're there. So sometimes we get new pieces of information, and rather than changing our story to fit the new information, we try to shove the new information into the story we're already telling. Okay, maybe it's just me. That's okay. It's just me. Um, let me share, you, share with you an example of when I did this. Not in relationship to God yet. We can get to that later. But in relationship to someone else. Um, when Ryan and I got married, I got this whole blessing of this other new family of Strebecks. I really like them. They're great. And so the end of this story is I love my father-in-law, and he really likes me, it turns out. (laughs) That's the end of the story. But the beginning of the story is that when we first got married, and we were just, I'm, I'm new to the family, and we're just spending time together. I'm trying to get to know everybody. Almost without fail, every time I started talking, 
my father-in-law would cut me off. I mean, it would just like almost every time. I would try to contribute to conversation and he would interrupt me and talk over the top of me like I wasn't even there. And y'all, I got my feelings hurt. <laughs> and he wouldn't deny it if he was in the room today. It really was happening. Some of the concrete pieces of information were there, but what did I start doing? I made up a story. And in making up a story, I made up a person that didn't even exist. Right? I made up a story wherein my father-in-law didn't like me. Just me personally. Maybe I've done something to offend him. I don't know what it could have been. Or um, possibly the only other explanations I could come up with were like he was just offended because I'm the newbie. I was the first in-law. Ryan's the oldest of four boys, and I'm the first intruder. So maybe he didn't like that. Also, did you hear Ryan is the oldest of four boys? Maybe he didn't like me talking because I'm a girl. I mean, can you hear this? That's a terrible story. That's a terrible person back there. I made up this whole story about a guy that doesn't even exist. Okay, so here's the real story. He couldn't hear me. He has hearing, like, he was, too, he thought himself too young to get a hearing aid. And everybody else in the family just compensated for it. There are these four boys with big booming voices and big booming personalities. And he couldn't hear me. <laughs> so for years, I had this whole storyline going where my father-in-law is a terrible, unkind, uh, inhospitable, and possibly chauvinist person. Not true. Not even a little bit true. My father-in-law is one of the most faithful generous, hospitable, kind people on the planet. And my relationship with him suffered because of my misconceptions and then the story that I made up that I wouldn't let go of. Is that making sense to you guys? Okay. We do this. We do it all the time. You know, somebody doesn't text you back and you make up a story. We do it all the time. And we don't just do it to each other. We do it to God. When God acts in a way that we don't understand, or we witness behaviors, we interpret it wrong, and we make up a story, and thus we make up a God that doesn't exist. It's hard to get involved with a God that doesn't exist. And we've been doing it for a long, long time. Okay, so like I said, we're going to come a long way to get to Exodus. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going all the way back to the very beginning. And we're going to talk for a minute about the glory of God. Remember I said that's where we're landing when Moses asked to see the glory. So we're starting in Genesis with the glory of God. So back in the beginning when we were created by God, remember we were in perfect relationship with him in the garden? We could be in the unbroken, unfiltered presence of God in the garden. And the glory of God is always where the presence of God is, always exists in the holiness. These are all interchangeable terms for me today. The presence of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God in all its fullness. And we could be present in that. And the glory of God is described, it's a hard concept for us to hold on to. It's kind of a churchy word, right? Does anybody say glory outside of church? <laughs> It's kind of a hard concept for us to grasp, and Scripture uses several metaphors to help us understand what the glory of God is like. Okay, so throughout Scripture, there's at least three that I know of. I, there's probably more, but the three that I wanted to talk about this morning 
to help us understand what the glory of God is like. Light, fire, and weight, heaviness. These are the metaphors. The word glory literally means weighty or heavy. And in the garden, in our unbroken, pre-fallen, not sinful state, we could experience the light of God as illuminating, not blinding. We could experience the fire of God. We were like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the angel, right? We could be in the fire and not consumed by the fire. We were like the, the burning bush, aflame, but not destroyed. We could experience the weight of the glory of God in a way that we could bear up under, like the weight of a parent that loves you a lot, the weight of a hug from a parent that loves you a lot, and not a burden that would crush us. That was the unbroken presence of the glory of God. And then what happened? The fall. God didn't change. God didn't go from being nice to being mean. Who moved? We did. We chose, in the fall, we chose a way of being in the world where the light became blinding. We chose a way of being where the fire became destructive instead of warming. And we chose a way of being in the world where we could not bear up under the weight of his glory. So when God put us out of Eden, it wasn't for his sake. God did not remove us from Eden for God's own sake. God moved us to protect us. Because what was formerly safe is now to our destruction. We have broken ourselves <laughs> into such a state of being in the world that we can't handle the unbroken, unfiltered presence of God anymore. Now, tell me we didn't misinterpret that story sometimes. Right? When people don't do what I tell them to do, I get petulant, punitive, and angry. <laughs> Ask my children. Like that one. Hi. So it can happen, right? But we look at God and we, and we write his story as if it's our story. We do not serve a petulant, punitive God. We don't serve a self-interested, selfish God. God, in his perfect, loving, full glory, just can't change from that state. So when we became unable to bear it, he had to move us for our own sake, for our own safety, for our own protection. And then... What God did was set about repairing that broken relationship for us. We broke it, but he set about fixing it. And it's what God has been up to ever since. God, that's what God is up to through the whole Old Testament. That's what God is up to in the work and person of Jesus Christ through his death, resurrection, and ascension. That's what God was up to through the whole New Testament that we hear about in the early church. And what God has been up to since then until this moment right now is fixing what we broke and helping us choose to re-enter a state where we can be in the unbroken, unfiltered, righteous, restored, holy presence of God. That we can get involved with God the way we're created to do. That's what God has always been up to. Okay, so now we made it to Exodus. 
in the 33rd chapter of Exodus, we joined the Israelites right after the golden calf incident. Okay? So they've been liberated from slavery. They've crossed through the Red Sea. God's provided water. God's provided manna. God's provided the law, which they blatantly ignored and made a calf. And God says to us, look at the beginning of this 33rd chapter. If you want to look with me, I'm going to read the first few verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, then being right after the whole thing, the golden calf went down. The Lord said to Moses, leave this place and you and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go up to the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. God's saying the plan is still the plan, right? Keep going towards the promised land. But then he says, I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Uh Uh-oh, punitive, petulant God is back. (laughs) Right? Like, we can hardly read this story without hearing God going, I can't spend any more time with you people or I'm going to lose it. Because that's how we are. What if this is still the same story? What if this is still the same God? What if this is still the same God who's saying, if I get too close, you might wander into the fire. If I stay too near, you might suffer under the weight of my glory that you can't bear. And I could, I'm encouraging you and inviting you through the law to become a people of holiness who can bear up under the holiness, but you're making calves. You're making it worse. What if God only ever always acts for our good? And we're not the first people to have misconceptions about how God works. Okay, so look at this diet like pattern. I I promise it's there. We don't have time to rehash it all, but y'all go. I know you don't have anything better to do with your Sunday afternoon. Okay, go home and read the first 30 chapters of Exodus. No big deal. But I can give you a summary. This is how the whole thing goes. Right. They come up against something hard, like during the plagues and all of the Israelites go, oh, no, God can't possibly give us what we need. This is where we die. And Moses says, I'm going to ask. And then God says, here's what you need. And that's what happens when, like during the plagues, when they say, Moses, it's just going bad. Stop trying. And he says, I'm going to ask God for what we need. And they're delivered from slavery. And then they run into the Red Sea. Oh, no. God can't possibly give us what we need. Here is where we die. Moses says, I'm going to ask. The waters are parted. And then there's an army chasing them. And they see the army, the most well-trained, well-funded, well-equipped army on the face of the planet chasing them. And they say, oh, no. God can't possibly give us what we need. Moses says, I'm going to ask, and the waters close over the chariots. And then they take three steps and get really thirsty, and they say, oh, no, God can't possibly give us what we need. And Moses says, I'm going to ask, and God gives them water. And then they get hungry. Anybody? Oh, no, God can't possibly give us what we need. Moses says, I'm going to ask. God says, here, yes, I will provide. And where we're at in chapter 33 is that now instead of water or food or deliverance, instead of being hungry or thirsty or scared, what they are in need of is forgiveness. 
Because what they've done is another thing that you and I have all done. They have really blown it. They have really blown it. And again, the Israelites say, oh no, God can't give us what we need. This is where we die. And Moses says, I'm going to ask. And he goes to the tent of meeting to meet with God. And I love, I love the dialogue that is recorded here. Um, this one I'll only claim for myself. I don't know if any of you do this. I have long conversations, especially long arguments with people who aren't there. <laughs> right? You have a long, especially when you're gearing up for a fight. Do you ever have the fight in your head before you have the fight? I think Moses has been doing this for a while because this dialogue is great. Moses goes in and says, God, you have to go with us. You have to go with us or else we won't make it. And God says, okay. And Moses says, no, you have to go with us. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> God says, yes, I will go with you. Corporately, as a nation, I will go with you. And we get to read about it in the rest of Exodus and Deuteronomy, the way that God says, build me a home among you. You live in tents, and I will live in a tent with you, in the Holy of Holies, and, and there will be sacrifices, and this is how we're going to keep my holiness separate from your unholiness so that you're safe, but I can still be with you. And it's great. So the, the people are accounted for. And then Moses does this just ridiculous thing, and he just asks God for a favor. This isn't for them anymore. This is just for me. God Will you show me your glory? There's that word again that we don't really get. I think the translation that I liked the best that I read this week was, God, will you show me everything that is good about you? And it's a little confusing about the whole face thing, because at the beginning of the chapter, it says that God knew Moses face to face as a man knows a friend. And now we're at the end of the chapter, and God says, but wait, you can't see my face. So I was a little confused by that. Here's my, best, here's my best understanding of it after working on this sermon. Is that God did know Moses in intimate detail. Which sets the God of Israel apart from all the rest. Every other God is far away on Mount Olympus. They don't care about humans. They don't know any of them by name. They don't have a people. If they're going to be pleased, it's going to be by accident or because we worked hard enough. Right? We are so many meaningless scurrying ants to the gods except not our God. Our God knows us by name. Our God knows Moses intimately in that face-to-face -face intimacy. But when Moses asked for that reciprocated, what does God say? Does he say, no, that's silly. <laughs> you, no, we can't do that. Nor does he say, if you earn it, Climb the mountain, wear the right clothes, do the right dance, chant the right incantation, then do a backflip, sacrifice your firstborn, and hope that on the third day of the month something good happens. No. Once again, Moses asked, and God said, yes. God said yes. Again. And he did say, you can't, you still, even you, Moses, you can't handle the full weight of my glory. Too much of this light is still blinding. Too much of this fire will hurt you. Too much of this weightiness will crush you. So not all of it. <laughs> That's the you can't see my face bit. Right? 
But then he doesn't say, so you try to be safe. I'm going to pass by. Do your best not to get smushed. God says, I will keep you safe. He says, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand, as it's translated in most places. The Hebrew word here, though, isn't just the word for hand. Hand is a symbol of power. Hand is a symbol of efficacy, of what, what can be done. But the Hebrew word here is the word for palm. And palm connotes two things to us. One, your palm is what you use to wield a tool of precision. And your palm is what you use when you're being tender. God said, with power, precision, and tenderness, I will keep you safe from the things that you can't handle yet. And then he says, I will show you my back, which is that it's not intimate knowing. You know, to see someone from the back is not an intimate knowing, but it's like, I'll show you as much as you can handle for now. As much as you can handle for now. That's how God wants to be known. He wants us to know him as much as we can handle for now. So church, I think our call this morning is to, for one, could we learn to hold the stories that we're making up about God and each other a little more loosely? Could we let the new information that God brings to us about himself change our story instead of trying to smush the new information into our lives? And can we be people who follow in the, like the heart of Moses? And can we, just, can we just ask? We serve a God who wants nothing more than to say yes to as much of his goodness as we can handle for now. So I pray. Father God, I pray as we close today that you would shed light on the lies that we've made up. Father, I pray that you would stop us from trying to relate to a God that doesn't exist, to a version of you that we've made up based on our limited understanding. And would you call us to get involved with the real you, the one who only ever always acts for our good. And would you prompt our hearts to be people who could just ask for it. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.